Hello, I'm Christopher Gassan and this is Ireland's Edge. Ireland is enjoying an unprecedented boom in corporate tax receipts, with tens of billions of euro from multinationals in the tech and pharmaceutical sectors helping to create a huge government budget surplus. While the government predicts that its annual surplus will rise to an incredible 20 billion euros in the next few years, some of that boom will certainly be temporary as corporate giants shift their profits around the globe. So what happens after the gold rush? Leo Clancy is the CEO of Enterprise Ireland, the government agency tasked with helping indigenous Irish businesses grow and export, with the goal of creating a more sustainable domestic economy. He previously worked on the management team at Ireland's Industrial Development Authority, which has spent decades successfully tempting foreign direct investment into the country. At Ireland's Edge and Dingle, Leo spoke to Moran Kelleher about his own career and the prospects for Irish business and the economy. I'm joined here by Leo Clancy, and I'm so excited to have him. When we started Ireland's Edge, I suppose the topic that we keep gravitating about is what is the model, the social and the economic proposition that Ireland needs to build to sustain and thrive from this rock in uh, the North Atlantic on the supposition, and we're arts, we, we ask it from this arts perspective, we ask it from our position in a peripheral location, but we keep circling back to that question of what it will take. Leo, in his person, embodies so many of the experiences that merge into that answer. He has... Um, a rural Tipperary background from a farming background through private industry of the large corporate, the SME nature, moving into the public sector, first on the FDI side and then into the indigenous industry promotion in Enterprise Ireland to such an extent that I said outside, have you got any artsy thing going on? <laughs> to the extent that you have that, you're our ideal rounded renaissance. Ireland's edge man, and he tells me that there is a drama career to be reenacted in a few years in Juno and the Paycock. But um, before that, Leo, maybe I've told the story of, will you talk to us about the choices you made and your thinking along your career? Absolutely. So thanks, Bernard, and delighted to be back here. This is such a unique and special event that um, you know it's it's a real it's a real thrill and a treat to be back. I, I think what I did say to Myrne actually backstage is, uh, and um, and I have an old college friend in the audience who will appreciate this. I think because he's heard me try a few times. No one who's ever heard me sing or watched me dance has asked me twice. <laughs> So that's, that flow aside. That was it. I was, a, I was an actor in secondary school, but unfortunately I have enough drama in my life at the moment. And also, <laughs> drama requires quite a bit of time in terms of rehearsals, which I don't have at the moment, but I do hope to get back to it. I grew up on a dairy farm in South Tipperary. I'm re I have a daughter now in Leaving Cert, and I'm regaling her on a weekly basis. I've become my parents, effectively. I'm telling her, I milk cows every morning before my Leaving Cert, cycled to school four miles away, cycled home and milked the cows again when I came home and, okay, it wasn't a fabulous leaving cert, but I got there, you know. So, um, so it's terrible when you reflect on how old you become over time, but I went on then to do electronic engineering, so a complete change. Um, worked in, I graduated in 96 from Kevin Street, and it was the first year, uh, when I started college in the early 90s, my full expectation was to emigrate from this country. 
find a job. And electronic engineers today would find that absolutely incredible, but that's the economy that we came into. And the work of the agency I'm in now and IDA has contributed to changing that. So that was 96, got a job with Ericsson, 13 years multinational. And we decided, myself and my wife, that we weren't going to do the global thing, mm -hmm. which in a multinational means you're pretty much there, you're sealinged. So a job came up in an SME during July 20, 2008, and I resigned my 13-year multinational career on the day Lehman Brothers collapsed <laughs> to join a loss-making startup in Limerick. <laughs> so my choices are just inspired, as, as you can tell. Uh, my boss did give me a chance to take it back, but actually I'd never been sure of anything in my life. So I started in January 09 with that company, and that was the first time in its three-year history in a month that didn't take an order. And at the, at the time, we were living beside the Adair Manor. And rooms in the Adair Manor, I test people with this all the time, are 25 euros a night. You know, we, we forget that yeah. that recently our economy that was recently. in that much trouble. So that was the start of what was a brilliant five-year journey because we took that company on an amazing journey. And we're in the process of selling it. What kind of roles were you playing in it, Leo? Very good. I was CTO, effectively. So I was responsible for all the post-sales. So I joined as employee number 32. Effectively, there were 32 of us in the company. I had all the sales, uh, post-sales delivery, ongoing operations. I was the guy who was woken up in the middle of the night when something broke, effectively. So I was an engineer still at that point. And we were in the process of selling that company in 2012 when someone rang me and asked if I'd be interested in being head of technology in the IDA. And I said, I run a fairly big network. Why would I not be head of IT? And they went, no, no, no. It's the marketing side, working with the big companies. So I thought that was fascinating from the concept of I'd had a little bit of experience of public service and a real interest in what was happening in our economy. So I went with the process and joined IDA, spent eight years running the tech was, sector. What was even interesting to that headhunter in your, like you weren't a conventional choice, presumably, Not for no. that role in the, what, what were they seeing that you would bring to that? It was actually a former boss of mine who'd been asked to scope around and do you know anyone who might be interested? He said, I think you might be interested. What was interesting, I think the core of it was a tech background because it was a tech audience, multinational, that I had worked in a multinational as well. It was huge, of huge interest. My prior five years was completely irrelevant, actually, working in a, in a fast-growing SME where we generated a hugely profitable business. We'd quadrupled the revenue in four years, but that was kind of irrelevant. The multinational experience and the tech background were the two main things. So, And so just did you leave before or after the sale of that company? During during the sure. sale yeah. and into so your portfolio in the IDA what did that encompass by the time I left a year and a half ago it was about 45% of the total portfolio all the tech companies so Google Facebook Amazon Apple and 500 other tech companies were my clients but my most special one of course was Intel <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, huge, um, huge base of clients, and the really exciting. That was the period from 2013 to 2021, and we just saw incredible growth in the tech yeah. sector. That was when tech solidified into Ireland, and we really became the digital hub. So it was an absolute privilege to be there over that time and see that journey and see the economic contribution that was brought by all those tech companies. That's now paying huge dividends for Ireland in the context of the pandemic corporation tax receipts that you mentioned, the personal tax receipts, the solidity that was brought to the economy. So it was a great journey. And as you look at kind of tranches of activity or waves within that base as it has built up, 
what, again, you know, in a different kind of way in terms of the investment proposition that we were obviously, we are obviously seeking to have companies make here, but you were obviously seeking to make in them at the same time. What were the key theses or beliefs or areas that you were feeling we needed to get into or that we needed to start the next wave of development from an Irish base? I think um, talent has been the overwhelming factor um, underpinning investment. You know, ta everyone talks about corporation tax and that's certainly a factor. Talent, the business friendly environment that we have, but you know, the governmental support for investment and whether that's in Irish companies, in the job I do now with Enterprise Ireland or multinationals, the people just can't believe how, how um, deeply felt the connection is with, with economic development in Ireland. And I had this question in Singapore and it's almost an intangible, but you feel it here this week. You know, you feel Mark Redmond is in the audience there. Mark asked me at this conference a couple of years ago, what do, think, what do I think is the superpower of Ireland? And I said connectedness. <coughs> and I, I still believe that's true. You know, people come here from the States or elsewhere and they just can't believe, and even people we bring in as buyers now to meet Irish companies, they can't believe how connected and cohesive we are. And I had this question in Singapore at a round table, very varied round table two weeks ago, where people said, why is Ireland, why does Ireland care so much about this stuff? And I gave him an answer that I'd never given before, but I've thought about it a lot over the last couple of weeks. My mum and dad went to school with people who came to school in their bare feet. We still have a race memory of that. And that, that makes us really understand and appreciate economic development, prosperity, and the true value of that when you can, when you can remember as a race the absence. And do you believe that there is also a shadow side to that connectedness that shows up in our relationship to economic development. And what are you thinking of, Mark? I'm thinking about in a, <laughs> a I'm, genuine question. I'm thinking about connectedness in a small society and you know separation of roles and incentives and the potential for groupthink and a crowding in mentality begrudgery and all those other things, yeah. Less the begrudgery is the shadow side of the connectedness. Okay. Maybe I'm, but. Yeah. I, th I think the value outweighs, like there, there's shadow sides to everything in life and there's no good without some bad. But actually I think in Ireland it's, it's fundamentally felt enough and we, we really, I think we really as a society understand that everything has a shadow side, but actually I don't worry about that so much because I like to think, um, I like to, well, look, look at things from a glass half full perspective, but uh, I really feel, in my job, I'm privileged to feel how behind the, the agenda of economic development everyone is. And people can leave aside their differences and, and do so well, but the, the absolute privilege of being in my job and the job in IDA that I did previously is just that goodwill towards the mission from everyone in Ireland. I had the fortune of meeting Ambassador Adrian O'Neill, uh, who's recently returned from his spell as Ambassador to the UK this morning. And Adrian quietly did a wonderful job on Brexit for Ireland in London for the last number of years and on everything else he touched and, and was a true friend. So there was no internecine rivalry between Department of Foreign Affairs and the Embassy 
and EI and IDA, we all work cohesively, and my team can't say enough about Adrian, and that's the person now as well as the institution that he represents, but we find that everywhere we go, actually, and just being here today and meeting old friends that embody that just makes me worry less about the shadow side. And what surprised you in that move to become a public servant from the, you know, I suppose there's certain things you expected and certain things you didn't expect. As you look back now at that vantage point or anybody else making that type of decision, what stands out for you? I, I was involved in a PPP, so Enet, the company I worked at previously, had a PPP. We were fully and aggressively private, but we, we, met, we met the public, uh, public-private partnership, sorry. So we met the public servants all the time. So actually, it, there wasn't a big shock immersion factor because I'd come to know what would be the frustrations and the benefits. What I would say is the Irish Public Service can move incredibly fast when it needs to, as can all public services, and often faster than multinationals. You know, I've seen multinationals that take an awful long time, and I've had a lot of experience of hundreds of them over recent years. It can take a long time for things to happen. You know, so I think the things that people accuse the public service of are sometimes true, but often not, actually. I think um, it's, uh, I, I think the difference, uh, public service I think of is more like a, a long-standing corporation. I, I, I'd say most corporates would hate to hear that, but I, I don't think it's that different. What surprised me, what surprised me in a really good way is the quality of the people and the commitment to the mission. You know, and I'm fortunate of having a number of our colleagues in the room today and had breakfast with Charlotte, who's here this morning, and Jerry and I were together yesterday. Jerry's our regional manager in, in Kerry and, and the wider region. Just the quality, commitment, and passion for what is a public service base salary. You know, they're not bonuses, they're not incentives to get your job done, but what people put into their jobs on weekends and nights. And it, that surprised me, actually. I wasn't expecting to see the that level of quality and commitment. So that's probably the single biggest surprise in a really good way. And your next, um, I suppose, big decision was the move, as you were saying, coming from a period of enormous success on the FDI side. You made the decision to move organizations mm. into promotion of indigenous industry. What motivated or what, what, what were you looking to satisfy professionally on that front? So professionally, a CEO role is something I'd always wanted. So that's, um, that, was, that was a role I'd wanted and, and was keen to do. So that's, that's a simple, basic one. But, but to, have, to have more influence over the direction of the country economically, uh, to be able to help the mission that I'd become accustomed to in IDA and something I really believed in, you know, that, that economic progress of the country, making sure that we continue to be prosperous and the, the feel-good factor of that. I think the more, the more you go up in an organization, the more influence you can have on that. There's a big responsibility on the other side that comes with that. And if you get it wrong, you, you have much more of a negative impact. But that, for me, was the, was the big ambition. And if we stand back from that then, so the, the economic value proposition attached to indigenous industry, the type of companies in that go into global markets from an Irish base um, into traded services, into manufacturing. Where do we stand as the health of that um, comparatively and uh, I suppose kind of sectorally? Mm. 
So our biggest, uh, we've seen 2021 was a year of record employment growth and record export growth for the Irish exporting sector, which was phenomenal. It was great to see it because 2020 had been flat on both counts. So it had been literally we'd held our own in the prior year. Due to COVID, we came out with a big charge in 2021 and the um, sectors did really well. It was very diversified as well. So we saw all sectors grow. Food is a huge export for us. Um, that's about a quarter of our clients by employment are in the food processing sector. And obviously there's a wider impact through the farming community. We'll hear from Dini and next on the panel, there's a huge economic impact wider than that, but that's the biggest one. Uh, industrial life sciences and construction are as a, as a piece is the next biggest sector, is, is the biggest single sector that we have. That does really well and is very diversified. Engineering, people know CombiLift and McHale's and all the other brilliant Irish engineering names. They have been consistently good for years and they continue to innovate and grow their exports. So that's in really good health. Construction's been the biggest growth market for us actually in the last number of years. And that's an interesting one with Intel in the audience here. Irish companies in construction cut their teeth on some of the most difficult projects in Europe, Middle East and Africa over the last 30 years. So the build of the fabs for Intel, the builds of data centers uh, for Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook over the noughties, uh, the builds of the world-class biopharma facilities, medtech facilities, mean that Irish construction is the most sophisticated in Europe. And it's our single biggest export category now, which is really interesting. Services and components in construction are the biggest one. And that's a direct spin-off of multinational investment into Ireland, so really strong. And then technology and services is about a quarter of our portfolio. It's the one I think we can grow the fastest. And if you look at the growth of unicorns in Ireland, and which I think isn't isn't a great measure for an economy, uh, the, the best measure for an what economy. What do you characterise as a unicorn, just for the? A uh, company valued over a billion dollars. So we've had, we have seven that are fully Irish and probably arguably Stripe and Intercom, even though they were founded in San Francisco or headquartered in San Francisco, could be counted as quasi-Irish unicorns. Companies valued at over a billion, but fast-growing services and technology tends to be the business. I think there's massive opportunity for us in that sector. That, and if you look at the if you look at the industrial split in Ireland, ten years ago, IDA-supported companies were 60/40 in favour of manufacturing, as were Irish companies. This story is flipped in multinationals through the growth of the tech sector primarily. There is now 60/40 services to manufacturing. Our Irish base is still 60/40 manufacturing services. And that's not a criticism because both sectors are growing, but it just shows you the level of opportunity we have in services. And again, spillovers from multinational, we're going to see, I think, a huge influence from the Googles and Facebooks and Twitters and Amazons on the growth of our Irish multinational tech sector, our Irish tech sector that hopefully will become our own Irish-owned multinationals. So I found myself on the plane to New York a few weeks ago with um, the Entrepreneur of the Year cohort were on the move. They were obviously on an annual tour and they were visiting, um, the, they were on their way to Austin, I believe, but it, um, it really led me to reflect, I suppose, on the bunch of people who were on the plane. And in terms of, um, you know, there were people who, there were obviously generally the founders, so there were people who'd been through a journey of building a product, building a business, building an organization, bringing in a revenue base, 
managing a funding piece and really, you know, and, and competing in global value chains. It, it really struck me as I just listened to them in the check-in queue and, on, and, and, and around on the plane, um, just the extraordinary level of dimensions that they're thinking across all of the time. And it led me to this question, I suppose, of what was my own theory of entrepreneurship across nature? Were they born that way? And I'd argue looking some of them that they were. Um, what was the nature effect of what they had been exposed to and grown up in? And what was the continuing piece of the environment in terms of incentives? And I suppose then as the head of the agency responsible or most responsible for supporting their growth in the world, I thought it was a relevant question. What is your theory of entrepreneurship across those dimensions? Yeah, so nature and nurture is an interesting starting point if we take that one. I agree with you, actually. I think a lot of the people I know who are entrepreneurs, the nature and the risk of the entrepreneurship journey means that it has to be, there is a, there is a quite a level of born with it, I think. There's variations to that, though. There's great entrepreneurs I know who lost their jobs in multinationals and were made redundant. Famously, Digital Corporation in Galway. I think most people who uh, work in business will have heard that story where the, it was shut down at a difficult time for people to find alternative employment. And Enterprise Ireland at the time, its, its antecedent organisation, stepped in and ran entrepreneurship training and courses for people a huge plethora of Irish businesses came out of that. So I think there are some entrepreneurs who are born entrepreneurs. We met James yesterday uh, in Dingle, you know, someone like that who is born with a, with a will to succeed and at 14, 15 is already running a business. A lot of entrepreneurs are like that, but there is that other category of people who, for entrepreneurship is almost, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a choice that they're not forced to take, but there's, that's a, a better avenue than maybe the alternatives at a difficult time in their lives, and that can succeed very well as well. So I think there is no one, there is no one thing or no one factor, but I do think nature is a huge part to it. Where are we in Ireland? I think we're still a young economy. You know, if, I, if we go back and think about the Tika Whitaker paper in 1958, it's only then that we started to develop an industrial policy and we only started to have a startup economy in the 80s and 90s. We're only now into the second generation of that economy where some of the success in terms of both the experience and the funding that has been realized from those waves of entrepreneurs, even the IPOs of the late 90s, that are starting to feed back into the new wave of entrepreneurs. And we've bemoaned at EI for many years that lots of our companies, our great Irish companies, are bought by other multinational by multinationals as they grow. Um, that's uh, that's something we'd like to see more IPOs and more companies going to to stay private for longer or becoming public out of Ireland. I think we're uniquely positioned now on that journey. I see entrepreneurs that I meet now have the ambition to keep their companies Irish for longer, to continue to be independent, to stay in control and we're, we're maturing as an entrepreneurial society, so I think people are seeing more possibility and are less frightened. Other aspects are maturing too. It's a very complex environment. If you look at venture capital, you know, the accusation of venture capital for many years is that entrepreneurs were kept lean and hungry, so actually when the opportunity came to exit and sell the company, they took it because they were in fear of not being able to pay their mortgages or send their kids to college. It was a real fear. I think that's changing as well. 
there's more money focused on Ireland now. We saw the Irish Venture Capital Association announce that by the end of September, over a billion had been invested in Irish companies this year, up 25% from last year. So there are more options, and I think that money is kinder to entrepreneurs. So it's giving them the option to pay their mortgage off, to put some money in the bank, and to continue their journey, unfettered by the daily worry. And a colleague of mine, Jenny Melia, was on that plane. Uh, she runs our high potential startup unit and our technology and services. But Jenny, when I started in EI, said, you need to be always very conscious of empathy for entrepreneurs. He said, for everyone that succeeds, there are nine or 10 who don't. Mm -hmm. And you need to really be mindful and empathetic to that journey because there's a family and a, and a life behind everyone's business and many lives, including the employees. But the entrepreneurs often, be, by nature, would say to me that they're not people who could see themselves doing a job for someone else. So they're risking everything with their businesses. And Leo, like following on from that, I suppose, there is more than the entrepreneurs. There, there's the people, as you say, you were 32 or 33 in that organization. There's, there's a team around and, you know, for, for so many people in an Irish context, as they choose between potentially, you know, to join a team, shall we say, a growing team around a founder. And they look at, you know, they we're living in a very high cost society um, where people coming in with extensive property obligations and education and health obligations. Is our tax environment, as opposed to the VC environment, supportive enough of the risk that is being undertaken in the sense of these businesses at some level represent houses in a broader sense that we want more of us to be able to take shelter from an employment front under. Is, is it sufficiently rewarding to that level of risk at the moment? I think the policies have been progressive over time. So I know the Minister for Finance is here this afternoon and he might comment on that. But it, he's, he's worked as his government to continually improve the environment. I think if you ask the entrepreneurial community and the lobby groups that, that work on behalf of founders, they'll say not because uh, you know, they'll want more and, and they're right to continually ask for what they think they, is needed. But I think the proof is in the eating. You know, Irish entrepreneurial society has never been stronger. Irish entrepreneurs are succeeding. They are investing in their businesses. You know, there's been lots of talk about capital gains tax levels for entrepreneurs exiting. There's talk about uh, entrepreneurial um, tax relief. Uh, you know, the UK famously went to 10 million lifetime entrepreneurial relief, and we had a huge lobby to do that here. What is the equivalent in Ireland? It was 1 million at the time, and, and actually the UK dropped it back. I think it's still one or two million. I should know this off the top of my head. But actually what happened two years later is the UK dropped theirs back to the same level. And actually the one thing about Irish tax policy that's true both on uh, corp uh, for multinational corporates and corporation tax and other aspects and local is that the Irish government doesn't jump to do things that others are doing and copy them. You know, it's a stable long-term policy and that's actually contributed hugely to the stability of the economy as well. So there will always be things you could do that will benefit entrepreneurs more, but actually entrepreneurship is, is vibrant in Ireland. I think there are bigger problems to solve. You know, scaling funding into businesses to me is a bigger issue than tax relief for entrepreneurs. I think reliefs for and ability to pay salaries of employees is probably what you're alluding to, and that certainly is a challenge. We've had a full, we have a full employment economy. 
it's hard for startup firms to compete with large multinationals. That's just a fact. But the entrepreneurs have been very, I think, creative in terms of how they create the excitement around working entrepreneurial companies. I know one employee of a tech company, she, she was in as in any unicorn as employee number 14 or 15 and is starting to think about her own new business. You know, so there's people like that who see the opportunity to learn entrepreneurship through their journey. So I think there's swings and roundabouts. Leo, you spoke earlier of the potential, you know, spillover benefit from the FDI and you named some of the companies into, uh, the, in, into the indigenous sector. How would you, what is your own take on that spillover status, shall we say, at the moment? And back to the embodiment of your own story, what would best look like for you in that FDI indigenous relationship five years from now? I think innovation exchange is probably where I'd like to see it going. So I think subsupply has been hugely beneficial for Irish companies. The construction piece I mentioned earlier, materials subsupply. Uh, coordination on various things, but what we don't have is a lot of innovation exchange. And actually, just this week, I was at the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards on Wednesday evening, the culmination of that um, that journey that you saw on your way to the States earlier on in the year. But the night before, it was in Portugal, where Altis Group, the big telecoms, they're a big telecommunications operator across Europe, had invited Ireland to be their partner country in their International Innovation Awards. First time they had a non-Portuguese um, set of companies involved. And Sandra Healy's Inclusio, uh, an inclusive diversity and inclusion platform for businesses, won the top startup award on the night. But we don't have enough of those opportunities happening within the Irish ecosystem where large companies are working with smaller ones. So it's, it's topical, maybe it's just got a recency bias in my head because I was there on Tuesday. But just thought, what a phenomenal opportunity if we could create a continuous model for that to happen in Ireland. And what will it take to do that? It just takes what I talked about at the start, connectedness. You know, just uh, really telling the story, connecting people at a, at a human level. Uh, you know, a great example this year, is we signed um, an agreement with Google at, in Mountain View in April around providing digital training to Irish SME and microenterprise. And that's been a phenomenal success. And we had personal sponsorship from Lorraine Toole, who's the chief marketing officer of Google. I think if we can create more of those kinds of connections to get things happening, we will achieve more. But we need to put um, intent into it, I think. And maybe just coming back to that intent in the thing, um, you wanted to be, you wanted to lead an organization in a CEO role. Um, that brings a lot of, that brings with it the challenge of organizational development and renewal. Um, what is the health of Enterprise Ireland to undertake the kind of delivery that, that you want to achieve in the next number of years? So I think, and a couple of things. So the people, as I mentioned, have blown me away. They've been phenomenal. The talent is great. I mean, we're privileged to work with the people we have. <coughs> the bit I worry about is that Enterprise Ireland's mandate has expanded very significantly over many years. And it's quite complicated both for our own people and for industry to engage with. So the biggest change I want to bring in the organization over the next couple of years is to intensify the focus on our clients, which is where we, we need to be really, really focused and to 
take as, ma as much of that complexity off the table, maybe not get rid of things, but make sure that they don't confuse what our core mission is. So I would say that's very healthy in terms of the people and the ability through human beings to get things done. But I think structurally, we need to continually look at how we focus in on our core client proposition. And maybe as I kind of ask you then to expand <laughs> on the other side to another set of firms or enterprises, we've talked about the Irish Indigenous and the food, the FDI, there is another cohort of enterprises uh, in the country who are not trading in global markets, but are working in this high cost competitive environment. At an overall enterprise support and development perspective, are they receiving enough support? Yeah, I think I think probably I'll answer a different question. It's uh, it's you know what supports do they need? Might they need? You know, and I think that's been it depends on the sector. You've got to be really careful when you intervene in local markets that you're not creating displacement or distortion of local markets because what's absolutely true if people compete on a level playing field in an area is if you support one business, you must offer the same support to all or you're distorting the market. So that's a moral hazard when you intervene in any market. That said, there's a huge transition to happen around sustainability, around digitalization of business, and both for the futures of the businesses, but also for the benefit of consumers that buy from them, because we're a relatively high cost society, we need costs to be going down. One area we have a specific brief at the moment towards domestic industries in house building. We took this on. So our, for the benefit of people in the audience, our remit is exporting businesses that are in internationally traded services or manufacturing businesses. Uh, last year we were asked under Housing for All to take on a remit for improving in innovation and productivity in house building firms for the obvious reason of trying to increase the amount of housing coming to the market. And it's a difficult journey. What we found actually is we don't have a prior relationship with these businesses and also businesses in the domestic economy haven't been used to engaging with a, a state system. So I don't, think, I, I don't think it's a simple answer. What works really well though, and we saw a brilliant, I was lucky to have a tour of the Dingle Hub yesterday, which has been funded by Enterprise Ireland among others. And again, Jerry Maloney, my colleague in the audience has been heavily and deeply involved. It's, it's a wonderful community led by Deirdre. You, you're on the board, Mern, so you know it intimately. It's a phenomenal model for bringing together a community. I think the next panel, we're going to hear more about some of the outputs of that. Um, I think that's going to be the key. You know, In terms of understanding what local businesses need, we need local organizations to almost give us the playbook or the journey map for what's needed, and then state can work out how to intervene. But I actually think communities need to think for themselves about how to do things. And if we get a couple of playbooks and templates that we think are replicable and, and can be repeated across the country, that will change the game. But I think, I think communities working locally to improve the conditions for businesses and for people is a huge priority for Ireland in the next number of years. I just don't have a really good answer yet about how we do it. But I do think with what we see in Dingle, this conference is a great example. The Dingle Hub work is a phenomenal one. You can see a model for how communities might um, continue to sustain themselves and to thrive into the future. So um, I'm going to now to move to the other hat and say, uh, with the Dingle Hub hat on, we will hope to continue to pose those questions yeah. and to engage in, in the answering around them. Um, 
you know, acknowledging that it is, uh, you know, for an, for an agency like Enterprise Ireland managing the breadth of that complexity to really figure out what does agency at a local level mean. Um, and it's funny, Kevin, who was one of our guests yesterday um, from the Dublin Cycling Campaign, also a software engineer within the FDI industry, I suppose, he summarized it up into the sense of, well, it takes a village to grow a business. And I suppose that is, that is the continuing dynamic when we move into some of the more local aspects of this. So, as I said, I have been delighted to uh, invite Leo here. I think he brings a whole number of strands together of topics that we've been talking about at Ireland's Edge. And uh, thank you for your contribution to the dialogue. Thanks for having me, Mark. Clancy for joining Warren Keller in Dingle. On our next episode, Warren talks to some inspiring people who took it upon themselves to bring change to their own communities, from cycling to refugee rights to farming. To make sure you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production. I'm Christopher Casale. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.